Hello and welcome to the Quarantine Notes podcast. I am Mihaili Tivoyu. We have now reached the fifth episode and I would like to thank everyone who has been listening so far and anyone who is just now starting listening. This podcast started at a moment when the concert life was at an absolute standstill and I thought it would be a good time to start a series of conversations on wide-ranging topics with other musicians going through the same predicament. It has been a fascinating experience for me so far and it is something I would quite like to keep doing even when the quarantine might be eventually over. Indeed, there seems now to be a slow thawing of the concert life which in Britain at the moment is taking the form of concerts broadcast live from empty halls. I have one such concert scheduled in the near future and although it is something that fills me with joy after all these weeks, it is clear to me that we are still a very long way away from getting back to the way things used to be, if that ever happens at all. Coming back to the podcast, I would like to say a few words about how you could help its continued existence. As I mentioned, I'm very grateful to anyone listening, and if you have any friends who you think might enjoy this series, please recommend it to them. Also, for those of you who find value in this podcast and would like and have the means to support it with a small contribution, please consider subscribing to my Patreon page. It is surprising how time-consuming it is to prepare, record, edit and release these episodes, and it is becoming increasingly difficult for me to fit this in with my practicing and the Zoom teaching I am doing, and your contribution would allow me to continue to dedicate more of my time to this project. Not least, there are a number of technical ways in which the production of the podcast could be improved and made more efficient, uh, from something as basic as a better internet connection to upgrading the microphone I'm using, for example. I would also like to add that I welcome any feedback or suggestions, whether about who I should have as a guest in the future, or if you would like me to also do some other type of episodes, uh, such as a commentary on some topic or another. If you would like to get in touch, please write to me at mihai.ritivoyu at gmail.com. And now I would like to introduce today's guest, the pianist Andrew Brownell. Andrew is a prize winner in such competitions as the Leeds Piano Competition and the Bach Competition in Leipzig. He is truly an all-round musician with a fascinatingly wide range of activities. Not only is he a brilliant soloist, but also a sought-after collaborative pianist, an organist. He has a doctorate in music from the Guildhall School in London, and he is now on the faculty at the Butler School of Music of the University of Texas at Austin. He's also a lot of fun to talk to. Andrew, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Before we get to all the predictable stuff about the quarantine, 
uh, I have a question I've been dying to ask you because I, I've known you for so long and I've got to know that your range of uh, exp musical expertise and uh, activities is very wide and quite fascinating. And was it um, always clear for you that you wanted to, to become a, a solo pianist or did, did you have a, another goal at first? Um, yes, it was always fairly clear, um, in so far as in my teenage years, I don't recall really giving any serious thought to any other career path. Um, I think it was just, I didn't really see any other possibility. Now, of course, uh, I had, uh, had past tense parents that didn't want me uh, to go into this as a field, uh, particularly with an Asian mother, um, who, very true to the stereotype, tried to convince me before I went off to university, oh, you have to have a double major and you need to do uh, this, that, and the other. Um, I didn't really listen to any of that and I never really considered any of that. Now, it's interesting that you should ask me this question today because just yesterday someone asked me a similar question uh, and and uh, he said what would you do if you weren't a musician and I have as I suppose everyone does from time to time um, considered that question and what my other interests are in life and I think if I were not a musician um, I would either have become uh, a chef or a linguist and that's an area of of interest to me that i think perhaps not all of my friends are aware of um i suppose that's a rather roundabout way of answering your question but but the most direct answer is no i never really realistically considered uh, other career options i see but that's very interesting i was i was thinking in in fact if uh, to uh, another career in music such as uh, being an organist or um, um, a scholar, which you actually are in in parallel to being a pianist. Um, is, but, is that what you meant? It is what I meant, but it's I'm 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 glad you answered that because that's a question that maybe a lot of us uh, musicians are are <laughs> having are are asking ourselves these days: is what would I do um, if I couldn't do music? It it seems. Uh, a distinct possibility now that uh, we might not be able to do music in the same way we have been. Perish the um, thought. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, as you know, I think um, I I was a very serious organist for a number of years. Um, I'm not playing it very often anymore at all. Uh, I miss it terribly. Um, and while I lived in London, I did take all those RCO exams um, with an eye to having as an option pursuing a career as a church musician. Um, and uh, as for the more musicological side of things, no, that uh, there are aspects of it that interest me, but not enough to devote myself to it uh, as a full-time job. Um, I often tell people that when I wrote my doctoral thesis, um, I would read all of these books and I would pour over these scores, many of them, you know, first editions from the late 18th century. And as interesting as it was to do that in the abstract, 
every time I looked at a piece of music, I, I thought to myself, how would I play this? Or if I would read uh, something that a musicologist or an historian had written, I would, I would think, how does this change the way that I would play something from the period? So for me, performance and the act of making music has always been the ultimate goal. Um, not, I, I, I guess I'm not terribly interested in musicology as an end unto itself. Um, I will say, this will make you laugh. Uh, when I was an undergrad in Houston, uh, some friends and I were sitting around and we were all sort of speculating on where we saw each other in 20 years or what we imagined each other would be doing. And my classmates thought that, uh, or they had decided that I would be uh, conducting a French Baroque opera company, which seems, you know, it's not that unlikely <laughs> given my proclivities, but uh, sadly my path, my path has not taken me in that direction. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and of course you are uh, um, first, <clears throat> first and foremost a very accomplished pianist, and uh, I, I remember um, you telling me that Sorry, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but that you you wanted to come to Europe from uh, America because you felt you could connect more with the musical life uh, over here, and you came and and won an important prize in the Leeds competition and won in in the Hummel competition, and now you are back to America where you're uh, teaching at the University of Texas. Uh, I wonder how do you perceive still these differences between musical life in the States and uh, in Europe? And are, are they as, as noticeable as they used to be? Or is it all becoming more uniform? I think there's still an enormous difference uh, between the life that you can lead as a classical musician in the United States versus the life that you can lead in Europe. Um, I might back this up just a bit and provide a bit of context to uh, what I was saying about how I ended up in London. Um, I had spent a few years competing, as I suppose we all do, or trying to compete more accurately. And uh, I, I had won a prize at the Bach competition in Leipzig way back in 2002. It was a completely different world <laughs> in some ways. Um, and I was living in Los Angeles at the time. And I spent the next few years um, trying to get into further competitions. And I applied to all the usual ones, you know, New Orleans, the Cleveland, at least all the usual ones here in the US. And um, despite submitting what I thought were very strong recordings and applications, I could never get into any of the competitions. It was, it was very strange. It had been suggested to me, and I'm not sure how accurate this is, that perhaps my manner of playing or my style just doesn't go down very well here in the US. Uh, and then while still living in Los Angeles, uh, I did the Humo competition in Bratislava, as you noted. Uh, and then at that point, uh, I, th I thought, well, you know, that's 
two two times I've been to compete in Europe and I've walked away with a rather good prize, maybe before I turn 30, uh, I'm probably dating myself a bit here, uh, before I turn 30, I need to spend some time in Europe and make the most of that because it's not going anywhere here uh, in the United States. And that was why I went to London. Um, and as you know, spent over a decade there and, uh, and now find that I miss it terribly, um, which is perhaps not an enormous surprise. As to the major differences between uh, life as a musician here and there. Um, obviously, there's a massive difference between what happens on the continent and what happens in Britain. You know, it seems like crossing that channel is like crossing into a completely different world. And what goes on in Britain is perhaps closer to what happens in the United States uh, than what goes on in the rest uh, of the European continent. But um, in, and, and I say that thinking of things like musicians constantly complaining about a lack of funding uh, <laughs> or a lack of public monies to go toward, uh, toward things like that. Whereas, of course, in, in countries like France and Germany, there's enormous public expenditure on the arts. Um, but beyond that, the purely financial aspect of it, because I do think fees for concerts in the U.S. tend to be rather better than they are in Britain. I think ultimately there is a greater social visibility for classical music in Europe, and this is still true in Britain, uh, despite that musicians there will complain about it. Um, I think there is still more social visibility for it over there than there is here in the United States. You know, it's kind of astonishing to remember that Horowitz played a recital at Carnegie Hall in the mid 60s, which was broadcast on major network television over here. Now that was over half a century ago. I think even by the 70s, that would have been unthinkable. Um, really? Yeah, I, I think it would have been unthinkable. And whereas in Britain, you still have proms that goes on. Now that may just be in a few select months out of the year, but the fact that that still goes out over BBC One or Two, um, that says a lot about the dedication of that institution to keeping uh, classical music in the limelight, in the social consciousness. And I realize there have been many debates over which concerts are chosen for uh, that sort of thing and what kind of music uh, the BBC is putting before the public. Uh, that's a separate issue, you know. Uh, because it's so far ahead of, I think, where we are in the United States. And a major cultural reason for that, I think, is that in the U.S., classical music is still seen as a foreign entity. It's something that those Europeans over there across the Atlantic do. It's not an indigenous product of, of the United States, which I think is a shame because there has been so much fantastic music written by American composers. Um, perhaps not until the 20th century, but um, that sort of uh, cultural segregation, uh, and I, I realize I'm probably getting myself into hot water by employing a term like that, but in its most general sense, I think it's applicable. Um, I think it's unfortunate doesn't do us uh, any service um, and unfortunately it's been allowed to increase uh, and so I think 
I think a lot about what I can do myself to change that. I have not enough to have gotten me off my backside and actually put anything into action, but uh, it is something I think about. It's not the image I would have um, had in mind, well, having never traveled to the US. Um, and I, I, I suppose New York is perhaps different worlds than the rest of, of the United States uh, in that um, the music, classical music seems to be part of the general um, consciousness much more there, um, or that at least it used to be. To an extent, but I think New York is as removed from the rest of the United States as London is from the rest of the UK. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I keep thinking of that episode of a show we both enjoy, uh, Seinfeld, when <laughs> when George is dating a concert, concert pianist and he says, full of excitement to Jerry, she's playing the Waldstein, Jerry, she's playing the Waldstein. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and I, I can't imagine how they expected their white audience to know that reference. <laughs> but... That's really a good point. Now, that was early to mid 90s. I don't think American society has changed that much. So that's a really interesting observation because I, I, I don't think it would have been more immediate or accessible 25 years ago than it is today. So that, that's a really interesting point. That's, uh, yeah. Maybe you have a better handle on things over here than you think. <laughs> <laughs> or it could have been something they threw in just, just for themselves. Uh, <laughs> something that's that... possible. I suppose that's possible, but um, that's, that's a really interesting point. I'll have to think on that. So you said earlier that you really miss uh, London now and um, I just want to ask you, I, I've, as you know, I have stayed here and I continue to have a love-hate relationship with the city. And I wonder which aspects of it do you miss? Well, you know, I, I know exactly what you mean when you say that you have a love-hate relationship with it. I think that that's probably true of all Londoners to a certain extent. Um, and I do have to remind myself from time to time of of how often I would complain on social media or to friends about riding the tube, for example, uh, <laughs> or, the, or the wonderfully friendly and accommodating bus drivers in London. Um, I do remind myself of those things from time to time, but I think what I miss the most has to do with music. Um, living in a city with as active um, a scene as London has, um, of course, I'm, I'm saying it, current situation notwithstanding, of course. Um, I don't know. There's something about living in a city and going, going to a concert where uh, you're among such a high level of, of musicians. Um, and that there's so many of them and that they're so busy and that you're being heard by audiences that really get what you're doing. Um, there's, there's something that's, that's really, really nice about that. I mean, much in the same way I love performing in, in, in Germany, you know, they, right. 
the those halls are absolutely silent uh, when you play because they're they're listening to every tiny tiny detail uh, and they know what they're listening to and you know that because they come up to you afterward and uh, uh, and tell you um, there's something incredibly gratifying and exciting about that um, and I suppose when one is in the midst of it all uh, and living in it, it it might be a little bit difficult to remember all that I think it's easy to take it for granted um, but it is something that I am aware of missing at this time. And probably also the, the rich um, church music life that goes on here. As an organist, you you were involved sometimes in, in that. That's true. Um, I think I wasn't involved in that quite as much as you may think. I mean, I was <laughs> sitting at the more, but <laughs> I, I did have regular church jobs here and there. Um, that's true, although that does occur in the U.S., uh, believe it or not, uh, and is actually far better paid over here. Uh, <laughs> ah, <okay. laughs> the church so, in the <laughs> it's, uh, it's a different country, particularly here in the South. Um, of course. Yes. Uh, but, you know, still uh, in that vein, to live in a city where on any given afternoon, you can go to Westminster Abbey or St. Paul's Cathedral or Westminster Cathedral and hear some of the finest choirs in the world do what they do uh, on a daily basis. That's pretty special. That's pretty yes. special. So I believe it was uh, a few years ago um, that you started teaching. Um, you started teaching in Texas and um, I'm going to plagiarize a question that I've heard in an interview uh, and which I liked a lot, which was if you had uh, the Andrew Brownell Piano Academy, um, are there any subjects that would be taught to pianists that aren't taught in, in conservatory or university settings at the moment? Ooh, what a question. Um, are we talking a summer course or are we talking a, <laughs> a competitor to a year-long institution? Uh, a a year-long. Um, Wow. A, a full-time institution, yes. You know, this question could end up taking the rest of the hour to answer. Uh, <laughs> it's a question I'm terribly interested in. I think the first two things that come to mind are that vocal accompanying would be mandatory. And um, which is probably an answer you're not expecting because you probably don't know how much vocal accompanying I used to do. Uh, uh, I think I would probably also have classes in figured bass. Now, why? Uh, <laughs> the first, to deal with the first of those, um, I hate saying this because it's so cliche, but you know, certain cliches are, are cliches because they're true. Um, I have had fantastic teachers, as have you. Um, and they talked to me about, you must sing at the keyboard, you must do this, you must know how to connect one note to another, you must know how to project a melody and to balance this, that, and the other, and all of which is true, all of which was taught to me fantastically well. But still, um, 
I learned more from my years of accompanying singers about how to sing at the piano than all those other lessons. Because you just, you hear things in the breath support, you hear things in the energy that's given to a particular note when it's heading toward, I don't know, the climax of a phrase or what it's doing when it's coming back from the climax of a phrase. All of those things that any of us that listen to good singing know about. Um, I just learned so much more from that uh, than from, from any of the excellent piano instruction that I had, that I think all pianists really need that experience. And there's so much from that, that you can take away from the vocal literature that you can then bring back to the solo piano literature. I'm always telling my students, particularly over these last three years since I've been here, every time they come in with a movement of Schubert, I say, well, do you know the leader? And unfortunately, 99% of the time, the answer to that question is no. Um, I'm not sure that you can really understand Schubert without knowing that repertoire or the string quartets, uh, you know, maybe less so the symphonies. Symphonies are perhaps more essential to understanding Beethoven and, and, and certain other composers. But, um, but with Schubert, my God, you have to know those things. You have to know the textures. You have to know the, the sound world uh, that his music lives in. And uh, I think without that, okay, yeah, you can lead someone down the primrose path and they can create a reasonable facsimile thereof. But, um, but it's not truly internalized. It's not truly coming from from within themselves and uh, opera. I mean, Schubert is just an example. We could go on and discuss this ad nauseum. Um, you know, there's just so much to learn about singing at the piano and turning what really is a complex percussion machine uh, into something that sings and, and moves people. Um, so that would be course number one, course requirement number one. Number two, I think, would be um figured bass and that's just not necessarily to train everyone to become a continual harpsichordist that's not it at all um i think i told you that this last semester here uh, at the university of texas i i taught uh at my own initiative actually uh a course on realizing figured bass uh for postgraduate yes. piano students and um Of course, this was a, an, a natural part of the training of pianists, organists, and still is a part of the organ training, but, and composers, um, really up until World War I. Um, and it was especially important in the 18th century uh, as a means of teaching people harmony. And it's still used in a somewhat peripheral way to teach harmony today, but not in quite the same way, not in the same focused uh, way. Uh, and I think after you do it, you then approach even a, a, as basic a skill as memorizing hmm. with a completely different set of eyes. You know, you, you're looking at music from the bottom up. You're seeing harmonies. You're seeing chords that move one to the other according to a certain set of principles and rules and traditions. Uh, whereas sometimes I've seen students 
tried to play something from memory and and they've they've just played a five chord but they it just doesn't occur to them that even if they've forgotten what the next chord is it's probably a one chord <laughs> um, and i'm actually thinking about harmony and how that all moves uh when it's behaving itself um those things just occur naturally um, but i think it's also important to to have a bit of a grounding in, in being able to realize figured bass uh, I think that's important, and then you, and then you sit back down and you look at a weird Sarabande by Handel, where he suddenly goes into two voices, and you think, ah, oh, I can fill this in, you know, th this kind of texture. You know, there's no way this should just be two voices. Or you look at a sequence in a Bach fugue, and you think, well, I can ornament it this way because if I had a series of seven-six suspensions, and I were accompanying someone in a Corelli sonata, that's what I would do. Um, you know, I, I think it opens a window onto musical possibilities in 18th century music that otherwise remains shut. Yes, and engaging with the music on a, on a deeper level. Um, we, we're, we're not just reproducing music. <laughs> I mean, oh, uh, God, I hope not. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, um, yes, it resonates a lot with what I feel that there is something perhaps um, it's not meant to be like that, but it, it somehow ends up in, in the training of pianists, this sort of aiming for a perfection on the surface level um, without really understanding what's going on in, inside the music. And that has killed spontaneity. It's, uh, I mean, Improvisation died a very slow death in the classical world uh, in most quarters, but it's also put, put the last nails in that coffin. Um, and, and I think that's unfortunate. So yeah, hey, improvisation, another very, very important skill uh, in, in that, that every, every musician, instrumentalist, vocalist, whatever, um, should have. And that, uh, that is another thing that you can get out of working with figured bass. I think just the understanding of the act of playing, of performing as a spontaneous act of expression, rather than the execution of some preordained motions and, uh, and sounds, you know, which, which so often it can end up being. Um, yeah, it, it changes one's attitude toward, toward performance and, and, uh, you know, I, I may play this phrase this way today and tomorrow I might want to slow up a bit more there, you know. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm, I'm curious. Um, what classes would you want to see offered at the Andrew Brownell Academy for Pianists? Well, I, I agree with all, all those that you have mentioned. And uh, um, I was thinking that um, also, I, th I would think composition would be quite important and and it doesn't matter if it's not at a level that you would e ever um, show it to anyone but mm -hmm. I think the simple fact of thinking am I repeating this twice or uh, uh, am I not and, and this why and why what, what does it mean why do I want to do this um, it's um, it's so much uh, changes how you look at uh, at someone else's com uh, uh, composition and at the masterpiece That's yeah that's very good that's very true yeah yeah definitely um 
I remember one of my the, the teachers in my life that um, I found one of the most inspiring uh, was this Romanian pianist who is in his 90s now and who also had a career as a composer and um, he confessed to me uh, oh well I had this really nagging piano teacher who made me repeat things over and over again but I learned more from my uh, mm -hmm. composition teacher and from composing than anything else in even in how to play something sure absolutely that doesn't surprise me in the least and of course improvisation it's uh, I was very uh, pleasantly surprised to find improvisation as a as an optional at uh, Guildhall with David Dolan who's a very interesting person and right. um, that I think I uh, I never really took any classes there, but um, how was that conducted in a way that you felt was valuable um, or conducive? Because sometimes those classes can end up just being, well, they can end up being composition classes, which I suppose is what improvisation is on a certain level. But um, <laughs> No, well, it, it... Did you feel that that freed things up for you in a way? I, I felt it did free things up uh, in in a number of perhaps surprising ways. So for example, technically, um, when you want to play a scale because you just want to hear that succession of sounds, you don't start doubting whether you'll be able to play it evenly or not. <laughs> and, <laughs> this is a thought that goes through pianist's heads a lot, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> exactly. And no, it, it, it just it, it is what it is. <laughs> Then you just accept it. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. And uh, it also improved a certain kind of, of uh, memory of, of um, really quickly, easily accessible memory. When, when you have to impro improvise in a rondo uh, form and <laughs> you find you forgotten what the A was. Um, <laughs> or even worse, which key you started in. I, ha I have to say that the, the venue in which I've improvised the most is as a church organist. And remembering what the heck I started with was always a challenge. And when I could remember it, I thought, hey, this is great. But there were times when perhaps going into communion, I would actually take a scrap of paper and write an idea from a hymn that had been sung earlier in the service and so that I would have that in front of me and I wouldn't forget it because there would be times when I'd just go off and do something not particularly well. I'm not saying I'm a good improviser at all. Heavens knows there are friends of mine who do this remarkably well and I'm, I'm, I'm really just quite a, a novice at it. But I'd go off into some distant key and I'd be playing with some other idea and then I'd, I'd want, I really did have the intent of getting back to the opening idea because repetition is such a basic musical uh, ingredient of musical construction. And I would forget what, what it was. And I'd think, okay, um, I guess this is what I'm doing now. <laughs> <laughs> You're not alone in that struggle. I, I have it all the time. <laughs> Very comforting to hear from you. <laughs> yes. Um, so, now we we can't avoid the 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 big C. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, and not that one, but 
it's the C word. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I wonder um, two things. First, how how did you spend this time? Because I. I've seen by by doing this podcast, I've I've heard a lot of different ways, and that has been really one of the best things about it. Hearing how some people have started painting their kitchen, and others have started uh, working uh, a lot and learning uh, a lot of things. And how has this period been for you so far? And also, I wonder if you have some project that you're just dying to do once um, performing life is back to normal. Uh, sure. Well, um, I think I'm not alone in that the onset of quarantine or shelter in place or however your local authority may term it took me enormously by surprise. Um, I remember having a staff meeting at the university on a Tuesday afternoon in which this was discussed as a real problem. And um, you know, you have to bear in mind, my mother was living in Hong Kong through bird flu and SARS. And uh, so for me, these these were something that happened over there, um, a, a problem that occurs over there and really has had never made it around the world the way this has. And so I thought to myself on that Tuesday in the staff meeting, oh, this is a bunch of overreaction. This is uh, politicians and public officials wanting to make sure they've been seen to do something. Um, and within 72 hours, we had stopped teaching on, on site. The, that Friday, uh, we were instructed not to come on the campus because the, I think it was the wife of the president of the university had come down with COVID. Um, so it, it took me a little bit by surprise. And then we all had this very steep learning curve. Uh, and I, I know this is something that every musician will identify with having to teach online and having to familiarize myself with uh, an application that I've never used before and I don't think I'd really heard of uh, until uh, mid-March. <laughs> um, but at least for the first month, I'd say until mid to late April, I was actually pretty, pretty okay with it. Um, it was nice to be able to stay at home, uh, not have to fight traffic here in Austin, um, work at my own pace to teach students from the comfort of my own home. Um, and I've often struggled to find A, the time, B, the mental energy to practice in a meaningful way. Um, suddenly I had plenty of time and, and there was usually enough mental energy if I got started early early enough in the day. Um, I think as with teaching in person by the end of the day, forget it. Um, but uh, so at least for that first month plus, um, I think I was doing really, really quite well. Since then, in the month since, um, I've, uh, you know, I think everyone's a bit tired of it. I've, I'm trying to stay home and be a good person as much as possible. I've, I've seen a few people have ventured out. I, I'm starting to have this problem with productivity that a lot of people had, I think, earlier on than I did. It, it's it's a challenge to be motivated. Um, I'm still doing my best, uh, and I'm not beating myself up 
too much over it when I'm, when I'm not as productive as, as I might like to be. Um, but there are occasional days where I, I sit there and I think, yeah, I, I really ought to get around to that. But I, <laughs> and it's okay. I think it's all right. Because I am, at the end of the day, I am, on the days when I am productive, I'm, I'm very pleased with, with how productive I'm being. So in that respect, am I behaving like a typical artist where we just have these, you know, we, we go through that dramatic sine curve? Probably. Um, at the moment, I'm working on... Uh, I heard that you asked someone, I can't remember if it was Joanna or Florian, you asked what's on your music rack right now. Uh, the last thing that was left on the piano from my work yesterday is Chopin Etudes. I'm just going through all of them slowly. Never really had a chance to go through all of them. I suppose very few pianists have. Um, I'm not trying to get them up to tempo. As you know, I'm working through a little bit of uh, an injury with the middle finger of my right hand, so I'm not trying to get things up to tempo. This is just a way of keeping things in shape and keeping the fingers moving. Um, as for a long-term project, uh, you know what I'm looking forward to doing is hunting for concerts again, because that is something that I had promised myself at the beginning of this calendar year I was going to be, that I was going to get back to in a way that I haven't really been so concentrated about since leaving London. Um, and I was doing fairly well with it, and then all this happened. And uh, as you well know, concerts have been canceled left and right. Some, in, in some cases, the promoters have said it's simply a delay, but that means they will have a backlog of artists uh, whom they owe engagements to. Um, so I think it's going to be a while before it's all systems go again. But I am, I'm looking forward to that arriving so that I can, because I want to get out there and, and, and play. I, I also had a number of, a number of things. It was going to be a pleasantly busy summer uh, in a good way. I think there was a good balance of, of work versus downtime, which I think we all need at the moment, but all, all of a sudden, phew, you know, that went out the window um, and I'm going to miss it. I have missed it. I've, I've already had a few dates go by that I was supposed to do something. So that's my big project, is who I'm going to reach out to, what kind of engagements I would like to find, and uh, I'm looking forward to that. Yes. Well, let's, let's hope that that will, will come back as soon as possible. And uh, in the meantime, as you said, uh, I think all of us could learn from you to not uh, beat ourselves up if we have... Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm trying. In, I'm trying. Myself up. Initially, I was, I, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know how it is, particularly when you're really yes. productive on a daily basis. And, you know, I, I think many of us come the end of the day, we crawl into bed and, and mentally, or at least I do, but I think a lot of us do go through this list. Okay. What have I, what have I accomplished today? Have I, have I made good use of these 18 hours of being awake or however many it is? And, and there have been some nights where I've thought, Eh, you could have done better, but it's so hard without this um, any kind of structure really, uh, apart from that which we impose you know, on ourselves. Um, absolutely. absolutely. It, and I'm I'm becoming incrementally better at creating a routine for myself. <laughs> but uh, I've discovered I'm not a creature of routine. I always thought I would be, 
<laughs> and uh, and I think I've discovered that I'm really not. <laughs> so it's it's been interesting to learn that about myself. Because I think when a structure or a schedule is imposed on me, I can function really well with it. Um, but I think I'm not as good as imposing it upon myself. Hmm. That's interesting. Well, thanks a lot, Andrew. Uh, I, I realize we've been talking for a while. There will be uh, much more that uh, I'd like to chat to, to you about, but maybe we should do this again. I would look forward to that. Thank you. This time has flown by, I must say. It's, uh, it's been a much shorter conversation than I thought it would be. Good. I hope That's... that this is true for your listeners. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you okay. for having me. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast and you would like to hear more conversations like this, please subscribe. Also, please consider supporting the podcast on my Patreon page.